Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Jonah chapter 3. We'll begin reading at verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now, for some people, that right there will be the most encouraging line in this entire book. It is meant to mirror precisely Jonah's original call. Back in chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. But he rebelled. He blasphemed. He failed spectacularly. But now, having repented in the belly of the whale, he is restored. Note this well, my friends, forgiven people can be restored to useful ministry. God could have very easily have called someone else, but he didn't. He saved and restored the prophet Jonah. Be encouraged by that and be armed by that when next you face the accusations of the enemy. He will come to you in your ministry and seek to remind you of your former failings. Who are you? to preach repentance. You who were once the chief of sinners, you who rebelled against the will and word of God. No pastor and probably no Sunday school teacher is exempt from such visitations. Arm yourself with this passage. If you have truly repented, if the Lord has saved you and chastised you, then expect the Lord to restore you and use you again. He saves in order to send, Old Testament and New. Thanks be to God, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. I love what Matthew Henry says here. He says, see here, the nature of repentance. It is the change of our mind and way and a return to our work and duty from which we had turned aside. It is doing that good which we had left undone. I love that. The Bible warns us that there is such a thing as false repentance, a grieving over sin that is really more about consequence than conviction. The Apostle Paul says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death, 2 Corinthians 7.10. Not all grief is godly grief. Therefore, watch for a grief that is followed by a change of mind and way and a return to work and duty. That is real repentance. And we see it illustrated very well in this story. Verse 3 goes on to say, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days' and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, let's just stop there. One of the things that is very interesting about the book of Jonah 
is that there is so little actual prophecy in it. In fact, there are only eight words, and these are them. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. Now, obviously, Jonah said more than that. In all likelihood, he spent three days walking from street corner to street corner, repeating his sermon over and over again. And I'm sure that it was longer than eight words. But the point is that the focus of this book is not really on the message. It's not on Jonah's prophecy per se. It is more about the prophet himself. The story is really about how hard it is for God's people to come to grips with God's mercy. Jonah wrestled with that. He didn't want these people to be spared. He didn't want them to repent. He didn't want God to relent of his judgment. He didn't want any of that, which is why he does not appear to have put a great deal of effort into his sermon. And there is, again, great irony here. Jonah is perhaps the most successful preacher in the history of the Old Testament, and yet he did not want to be successful. And he put absolutely no effort into his ministry. In fact, he was hoping and cheering against himself. What an incredibly odd story. And yet what a powerful reminder of our own tendency to hoard and barricade the blessings and mercy of God. Jonah reminds us so much of the older brother in the prodigal son story. He is so irritated here with the father's desire to be generous to the brother who has been living a sinful and wasteful life. Jonah thinks the Ninevites ought to be left outside. They deserve the wrath of God, and he won't do any more than the letter of his commission to contribute to their salvation. Jonah has been saved, but he still has a lot to learn. Nevertheless, despite Jonah's obvious lack of enthusiasm for the project, the people of Nineveh do, in fact, repent. Jonah reports that in verse 5. He says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, I think that this should serve as both an encouragement and a rebuke to modern-day preachers. On the one hand, it should rebuke all those who think that revival can be engineered by human means. There are people who think that if the music is just right, and the lighting is just so, and the fog machine is working properly, then surely the Spirit of God will move and people will come to saving faith. And if they don't, then they just make the appropriate adjustments. They they play the chorus one more time. They lay on another cloud of fog. Maybe they even turn on the laser machine, dim the lights, and, and maybe even sometimes prime the pumps. Surely then, revival will come. But Jonah does none of those things. In fact, Jonah does as little as humanly possible. And still, he saw perhaps the most remarkable revival in the history of the Old Testament, which reminds us that the Spirit blows where it will, and who can understand it? Now, on the other hand, I think this passage should also serve as an encouragement to faithful servants who have labored in preaching and teaching the Word. It reminds us that the Word of God does the work of God, irrespective of the gifts, enthusiasm, and charisma of the preacher. Now listen, I'm certainly not suggesting that you neglect your preaching, as Jonah appears to do here. I am just saying that the Word of God has power 
in and of itself. I'm always reminded of that quote by Martin Luther about how the Reformation happened. He said, take me for example, I opposed indulgences and all papists, but never by force. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip of Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. Now, Luther wasn't advocating sloth or drunkenness, certainly not. He was just saying that the word of God has a power all on its own. You just need to let it loose. You just need to send it out and over the people that you've been sent to. And if God so chooses, if God sends out his Holy Spirit to work within those people, then there is no limit to what the Lord may do. He he may convert a single soul, a faithful few, or even an entire city. The Word of God can do that, brothers and sisters, Old Testament and New. Verse 6 tells us about the breadth and depth of this particular revival. Verse 6 says, The Word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Obviously, this was a remarkable event. It was a miraculous event. Many people have wondered whether somehow the story of Jonah's miraculous survival in the belly of the whale had somehow reached the people of the city of Nineveh, maybe through the other mariners. People wonder whether that contributed somehow to their incredible acceptance and embrace of his message. I've heard people even suggest that Jonah's appearance must have been affected by having spent three days and three nights in the belly of a whale. He may have been bleached, and he must have looked an awful fright. But be that as it may, and the text doesn't say, we mustn't forget that repentance is always a gift. That was the verdict of the early church after they were surprised By the conversion of the Roman Cornelius, along with all of his household, Acts 11.18 says, When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. My friends, repentance is always a gift. It is always surprising. It is never expected It is always a miracle of God. And yet, it is also something that people do. There can be no denying that. Verse 10 goes on to say, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. The Bible says two things that are hard to reconcile in our minds. It says that repentance is a miracle. It says that it never happens 
apart from the grace of God. And yet it also says that people do it, that they are responsible for doing it, and that sometimes they don't do it, and that God responds or relents accordingly. Now, if you ask me how that all fits together, how how the sovereign grace of God goes together with the obvious reality of human responsibility, I will tell you that I don't know exactly. I just know that I see both in the text on a fairly regular basis. Charles Spurgeon was once asked how he reconciled the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of people, and he said simply, I do not try to reconcile friends. Both doctrines are present in the text. They are friends. They go together. Now, my human mind can't understand precisely how they go together. But I trust that in the wisdom and providence of God, they do. All I know is that the Bible says that God takes our repentance, or lack thereof, very seriously. He treats it as a real thing. Jeremiah 18, 7 to 8, for example, says... If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. That is what God says, and that is who God is. God revealed to Moses his glory and nature up on the mountain in Exodus 34. He said that I am a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That is who I am, God says. And that is what we see played out here in this marvelous Old Testament story. Had the Ninevites not repented, then the Lord would not have relented. But they did. And so he did. The Lord is gracious and merciful, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, even when his people and his prophets are not. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.